Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. Worshiping God is the one activity that we will take into eternity. No more evangelism, because that that is taken care of. Uh, No more uh, dealing with our sin. That's taken care of. All kinds of things that we do as believers in Christ will be taken care of, but we will continue in worship. And um, so... uh, Caitlin said I would introduce myself. Just the short version is that I've been a pastor for uh, 19 years and uh, have been kind of almost obsessed with the worship of God. And I want to just show you this morning what uh, the Bible says about worship. I know that uh, Caitlin just prayed. I'd like to pray also if you would bow with me. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you this morning. And we know that it cost you dearly for us to worship you. It cost you the life of your son. The blood of Christ is what paid our way to come before a holy God who was furious with our sin. And yet now our sin has been covered. The gospel of Christ has enlivened our hearts, Lord, and you have regenerated us that we might be worshipers, which is what you have sought through all of creation, through all of your redemptive plan, It was for one purpose, and that was to make worshipers. And we love you and thank you. We pray that you would be glorified and honored this morning. Amen. Amen. Psalm 29, verse 2 says this. It says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I want to read to you a quote from Alan P. Ross, who is arguably one of the greatest theologians in the area of worship, and worship must be based in theology, not in emotion, not in what we think, but it has to be based in the scripture. He says this, For worship to be as glorious as it should be, for it to lift people out of their mundane cares and fill them with adoration and praise, for it to be the life-changing and life-defining experience it was designed to be, It must be inspired by a vision so great and so glorious that what we call worship will be transformed from a routine gathering, listen to this, into a transcendent meeting with the living God. And that's what worship is to be. There's no more important activity to the individuals of the body of Christ, no more important activity to the church, to the corporate gathering that we have than that of worship. Now, we know that worship encompasses our whole lives. It doesn't encompass just the gathering that we often call going to church. It encompasses everything that we are, all that we uh, possess. Even in very well-meaning church gatherings, though, and I'm going to start off with this this morning. The worship presented to the Lord, and it is something we present to Him, is not always based in Scripture. It's not always based in a theology that that is approved by the Lord. And today, basically, worship is thought of as in a little box that we call singing or praising the Lord. And that's what we say worship is. We'll even say, we're going to have the teaching of the word, then we're going to worship. Scripturally, the teaching of the word is worship. It is part of how we worship. Worship is the central activity, it's the central concern of the church And so it's worth our effort, it's worth our time to be informed and to worship in an intelligent manner, not in a way that's just um, off the cuff and making it up as we go. I have a very simple plan this morning. My first talk this morning is basically the bad news, and then the second talk is going to be the good news. What I'm going to start with is why the scriptures must drive our worship 
And then we'll take a break and I'm going to do how the scriptures drives our worship. So let's start with why the scriptures must drive our worship. You know, as you look around and just observe our culture, one of the things that we observe is that we live in a culture that prizes and values individualism, right? And that's not all bad. I mean, if we all had to dress the same, boring, right? We don't want to be boring. We want to enjoy our lives. But individualism has bled over into the church in what I consider uh, ways that almost would be heretical in some ways. One organization is promoting what they call, quote, worship songs that promote justice, peace, and wholeness. That sounds wonderful. That's not scripture's emphasis on worship, however. Another organization, in an effort to sell a very expensive church software, they talk about what they call, quote, awesome worship. And here's what they say. And see how good this sounds. Awesome worship happens when the presence of God is so real that people feel an indescribable sense of reverence and awe. On the surface, that sounds wonderful. Does it stand the scrutiny of the Bible? Does it stand the scrutiny of Scripture? Awesome worship happens when the presence of God is so real that people feel an indescribable sense of reverence and awe. Okay, let's apply Scripture to this. When the presence of God is so real, God is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, his presence is always real. You don't measure the reality of his presence in degrees. It is always a reality. How about this? Worship here is defined as awesome based on how I feel. I'm going to totally debunk that myth this morning. Because sometimes we worship God when we grieve the death of a child. Sometimes we worship God when we grieve our own sin. So we don't base worship on emotion. And the third problem is that the sense and reverence of awe we have from God does not come from emotion. It comes from scripture. My emotion tells me to eat five pieces of chocolate pie. That's not a good emotion. Okay? It doesn't inform me about truth. My emotion is a liar. Sometimes it responds wonderfully to the truth. When I sing, and can it be? Oh, my heart follows that truth. But the truth must not follow my heart. Normally I uh, teach verse by verse from one passage at a time. We just went through the whole Gospel of Mark in our church. Verse by verse took about a year and a half. But today I want to just skip all over the place. And you'll see why in a moment. But I want to do just kind of three foundational facts for us to start with, kind of where I'm coming from. First of all, the Bible defines worship in very broad terms. In other words, um, as Caitlin mentioned, uh, Romans 12 says that our worship is the sacrifice of our bodies. In other words, that we live lives that are lives of worship. That when I'm loving my wife as Christ loves the church, I'm worshiping God. As I'm disciplining my children in the admonition of the Lord, I'm worshiping God. As I'm singing praises to Him, I'm worshiping God. My life is to be a life of worship. But what I want to do is, my second fact is I want to narrow my definition of what I'm talking about to a small box of corporate worship. The worship gathering that we come together to do. And I would count this morning as a corporate worship gathering. How many of you profess faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, how many of you love his, his people? Right there. How many of you love to sing songs about the cross? Right there. How many of you are here right now? Right here, this is a worship gathering, okay? The third fact, God does not accept the worship of the unredeemed. 
And I want to be very clear about that, and we'll look at that more extensively in our next session. He does not accept the worship of the unredeemed. In fact, he says, I hate it. And he will judge people according to the falseness of the worship that they presented to him. Well, God is the one being worshipped. He's the one worthy of worship. So, basically, I just want to establish one fact during this first session. That fact is that God cares deeply about how we worship. And we don't get to just make it up. We don't get to just decide what we think corporate worship is about. This is our fact. God cares deeply about how we worship him. And we do not get to just make up how we worship God corporately. So I'm kind of giving you the bad news now. And then the good news will happen in the second session. So don't leave during the break because the good news is coming. What is worship about? It is about God's glory. It is all about God's glory. That's what all of creation is all about. It is all focused on Him. It's focused on God receiving that which is due to Him. And I think this is a concept that we have essentially lost in the American church. We have made worship about me instead of about God. We sing songs with the word I and me in it all over the place with few references to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There is a concept that we have lost and that is the fear of God. Our worship must be based in the fear of God. The fear of God has been replaced by sentimentality, by emotion. Listen, I have talked to people in my churches who have come and they, they love to sing the songs. They love to be joyful. They love to do all the churchy things. And you sit and talk to them and as you begin to understand their heart, you find out they don't know the gospel, they don't know Christ, and they don't know God. What they have embraced is not the fear of God. What they've embraced is sentimentality and an emotion. Somebody told me once, well, I don't have to fear God anymore since I'm a Christian now. Well, I understand where they're coming from. Um, Your salvation, because of this, you're no longer, uh, you don't fear God's wrath. You don't fear his justice. Christ has died for your sins once for all. But being a Christian doesn't mean we're somehow on equal footing with God. That we get to make decisions alongside Him. In fact, the Bible defines a spiritual fraud, an unbeliever, as this. Romans 3.18, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me put it this way. The only people who can truly fear God are Christians. We are the only ones who can. Did you know that the fear of God even motivates our evangelism? It is not primarily love for the lost. It is to fear God and glorify his name. Love for the lost is a secondary attribute, but it's not the primary motivation. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We know the fear of God, and so we evangelize. Well, my plan this morning, I just want to prove to you from Scripture that self-styled worship without regard for the fear of God is clearly condemned in the Bible. And that leaves us with only one option. We have one source from which to draw appropriate worship. And it is the Word of God. That is. I just got a new Bible. And I told them, I uh, I, I don't want the normal things. I put on mine the Word of God. Because I want to always be reminded, these are words that He spoke. And it is His revelation to me. I want to look... 
at the fact that Scripture is the only option we have upon which to base our worship. We don't base our worship on culture. We don't base our worship on what is in. And I'm gonna I'm gonna step on some some toes here. We don't base our worship on what is currently relevant. We base our worship on Scripture. To say that I'm being relevant now is to say that the Bible is irrelevant. I don't want to be any nearer the person who says that because um, that will incur the judgment of God. Now, this might feel a little bit negative. I don't want to feel negative to you. What I want to do, though, is there's a, there's a beautiful sculpture inside of a big piece of rock. And we've got to chip away the negative. We've got to chip away the rock to reveal the sculpture. And so we'll reveal the sculpture in the second session. But we've got to chip away at this. John Calvin said this. We may not adopt any device in our worship which seems fit to ourselves, but look to the injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe. Therefore, if we would have him approve our worship, this rule which he everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness must be carefully observed. Here's the rule. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Now, you may say, I'm not a fan of John Calvin. That's totally fine. But let's see if Scripture proves him right or wrong. I want to give you, this morning, just multiple examples of self-styled worship in the Bible and what God does with this. What he thinks of self-styled worship. Worship that's focused on the worshiper and not on the glory of God alone. Worship that's focused on what I think I should be doing, not what God says I should be doing. Let's just see what the Bible says. They're self-styled worship which God rejects. And I want to give you about ten examples this morning. There's the example of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 2-5 says, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And when it says that God had no regard, in literally it means in Hebrew, God would not look at it. He would not gaze at the offering that Cain brought. I just want to make an observation here. It is possible to attempt to worship God and have God reject your worship. That is a possibility. Why did God reject Cain's worship? Why was it an abomination to him? Well, Hebrews 4, or 11, 4 rather, tells us that Abel offered a sacrifice to God that was by faith. By implication, we can say that Cain offered a sacrifice that was not by faith. Let me get more specific with you. What was the faith that Abel came with? Was it just that I'm going to have a feel-good experience before the Lord here? No. His faith was based on Offering It was based on sacrifice. Before Genesis 9, before the end of the flood, God did not permit the eating of meat and the eating of animals. I don't know why. That's just, that was what he said. After the flood, Genesis 9, he said, okay, you can start to eat the cows and the goats and whatever you want to eat, and that's fine. If you were a true worshiper of God, you obeyed God and you didn't do this. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Now, if you're a vegetarian... Why are you keeping sheep? I, I understand that the wool is good, maybe makes good clothes. Abel was a keeper of sheep because he understood that he was a sinner and that his sin demands sacrifice. It demands a blood offering. That is God's standard. 
sin must be paid for. The wages of sin is what? Death. What did Cain bring? Cain brought crops. He brought flowers. He brought wheat. Why? Not because God isn't fond of crops, but because he believed that his sin was not enough to be worthy of a sacrifice. And so he thought in his self-righteousness, I'll bring to God what I think I should bring, not what God demands I should bring. And therefore, what happened? Cain became angry and God would not look at his sacrifice. Here's another example. The example of the golden calf. I'll bet you're going to learn something new about this in the next three minutes. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, he was receiving the law of God. The people of Israel, they grew impatient. They gathered themselves before Aaron, the the brother of Moses. And they demanded, quote, make us gods who shall go before us. And so what did Aaron do? Aaron wasn't a particularly great leader. So he said, all right, bring your gold, bring everything and we'll melt it down and make something. Exodus 32, 4 and 5. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is where our understanding needs to be clarified. We need to be very precise here. It seems that they're turning aside to worship false gods. It seems that they're turning aside to gods like the Egyptian pantheon of gods, of false gods. And that would be bad enough. But they did something that was even worse. The golden calf was a self-styled representation of Yahweh, of the one true God. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He called and they said, We're going to, number one, make an image of God. Number two, we're going to call it gods, not just God. Our decision is to make God a plurality as opposed to one God. They decided that the one true God should always be spoken of in plural terms. And I'm not speaking of the Trinity. That's a different issue. Exodus 32, 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They reduced God to an image and God was furious with this and 3,000 men died as a result. You don't get to self-style worship. How about the example of Nadab and Abihu? These were sons of Aaron that had been groomed and trained to be in the priesthood, in the, in the Levitical priesthood. Now they had their first real chance to function as such. Okay? You imagine that you've been playing baseball your whole life since you're a little bitty kid and you finally get your turn at the big leagues. And you're up to bat. What happened with Nadab and Abihu? They whiffed. Three strikes and they were out. Unlike baseball, three strikes and they were dead. Listen. Leviticus 10, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron, who had just watched his two sons die, Held his peace. Why? 
because the holiness of the presence of God was more important than the fact that his kids had just died. Scripture doesn't tell us what the nature of the offense was. We don't know what the unauthorized, or your Bibles may say the strange fire was. They don't, we don't know. All we know is that they didn't do what was prescribed in worship, and they paid for it with their lives. How about the example of King Saul? 1 Samuel 13, 8-14, King Saul had been told by the prophet Samuel to wait for him, and a sacrifice would be made. Samuel had the right to give sacrifices as a prophet, as a priest. Saul... As a king, got impatient. 1 Samuel 13, 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he was finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And here he lies. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul usurped the role of priest that was not rightfully his. And it cost him his kingdom. It cost him his life. It cost the lives of his entire family ultimately. How about the example of apostate Israel? For centuries, Israel continually rebelled against God. The book of Judges uh, recounts six cycles of rebellion against God then begging for his mercy and he delivers them. And it happens over and over again. They're disregarding his law. They're worshiping other gods alongside trying to show that they are real worshipers of Yahweh, of their one true God. That's like trying to say, I'm a faithful husband and have a girlfriend. You can't have that. Many of them did the right things religiously. They offered their offerings. They sacrificed their sacrifices. But they did so as those lacking faith. They did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. What was God's response? Did he say, well, you know, you did some really cool things. And I love the songs you're singing. And that sacrifice, that bowl was a really good one. And I enjoyed that. And so I appreciate that. I think you did your best. You offered what I, I didn't want. But you thought it was good. Is that what he said? Hosea 6.6 I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now he cranks it up. Isaiah 1.14 Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have been a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Amos 5.21 I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You know what this means? It means it's possible to do the right things. Looking externally religious. Looking really excited about Jesus. Looking wonderful on the outside. But God rejects pure externalism. See, they were giving God the symbol. They weren't giving God the reality of their heart. They were operating from external sham. Now, one time I was talking about this. And uh, somebody interrupted me and said, okay, I can't stand it, Steve. That's all Old Testament. We're in the New Covenant now. Okay, point well taken. 
He said, I'm free in Christ and worship has changed. Here's what he said. I can worship God any way that makes me feel good. Worship is my love letter to God. That sounds wonderful. Let's see if God's standards for worship changed after the cross. Let's just let the scripture speak. Does freedom in Christ mean freedom to do whatever I feel like? Let me give you some examples. The example of the unrepentant worshiper. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Put it this way, God does not accept the worship of a believer who has knowingly offended someone else and will not make it right. God says, I will not accept that. That is unacceptable to me. One family I was counseling with... um, had the husband and wife together for a bit. Their marriage was just in terrible shape. And, uh, you know, he had, he, he was no easy person to live with. I guarantee you that. But she claimed to know Christ. And here's what she said. She said, I love the Lord, but I cannot love my husband. And my response was, if you cannot love your husband, then you do not love the Lord. Because God said, you can't even worship. And I asked her, how many times have you been in church since you decided to quit loving your husband? She said, hundreds. And I said, I would repent now because God is going to take it out on you. You do not worship God self-styled. How about the example of the disorderly corporate worship? The church in Corinth had numerous problems, but one, it, it, one of their problems was the fact that they were disorderly. Their, their public worship gatherings were wild. They were sort of a free-for-all corporate worship experience. And Paul gave an admonition to them. 1 Corinthians 14.40 He said, But all things should be done decently and in order. And in context, he's talking about corporate worship gatherings. Decently. It's a word in Greek that means respectably, honorably, with modesty, with propriety. And in order. This is the idea of having your proper priorities in place. The example of disorderly corporate worship. How about the example of loveless worship? The example of loveless worship. In his evaluation of the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, Jesus said this about his church. By the way, never forget, your church is not your church. It's Christ's church. You don't get to do what you want to do. You do what the master of the church says to do. We don't make it up. He said that they did some good things. Church in Ephesus, they love sound doctrine. That's good. They endured trials for his sake. That's good. But then he nails them and he says, but you have lost your first love. Men, if you're married, can you imagine your wife coming to you and just saying, I don't think you love me anymore. I don't know of another more devastating thing my wife could tell me. They've loved doctrine. They've loved enduring trials. But you know what doctrine is? Doctrine is a description of how we know God. And you can't love the description more than you love God. We love God first. Doctrine helps us to understand, helps us to love. We love sound theology and it's what we base our lives on. But theology and doctrine is not God. There's a difference. Well, the natural impact of this is to become a cold, unloving church body filled with pride and devoid of love. You know, I attended a church like this for a number of years. Wonderful Bible teaching, expository preaching, verse by verse, it was wonderful. But you know, beforehand, 
during the, the singing time and during the prayer time and afterwards during the prayer time and singing time, people were literally not paying attention. They're turning to one another, drinking cups of coffee, just kind of hanging out. Oh, and then when it came to the Bible teaching time, okay, now we're there. No, that's a church that lost its love. We worship God rightly as an expression of devotion and thankfulness and love for our Savior. I want to tell you something that might feel a little bit shocking to you, but I think we can show this from Scripture. Expressing our love for our Savior is not about trying to feel a certain emotion. It is about trying to give Him what is rightly His. Let me put it this way. Let's say that I want to express love and devotion to my wife. I've been married for 26 years to the greatest little lady on the planet. And so I'm going to sit down next to her and I'm going to say, I want to express my love to you. So here's what we're going to do. You just stand by and watch and I'm going to conjure up an emotion. Here we go. All right. We're going to really get going. All right, sweetie, I'm feeling great. How do you feel? What's she going to do? She's going to, what? My expression of love to her is sacrificial. It is about her and not about me. My expression to love for her might be to hold a bucket while she vomits when she has the flu. Not for me to conjure up an emotion. True love has nothing to do with emotion. It has to do with action. And so when we want to say that we are true worshipers and yet we become loveless. What did Jesus threaten to the church of loveless worship? He said to Ephesus, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. My blessings, my presence with you as a corporate body. Anybody ever been to Ephesus? There's no church there. And there's no Ephesus there anymore, by the way. I think that the fall of Ephesus was due directly to the disobedience of the church at Ephesus. How about this example? The church of compromising theology and worship. The church of compromising theology and worship. Revelation 2, the church of Pergamum. They had the attitude that anyone could teach anything that they wanted. We're just going to be all together and be unified because we all love Jesus. And that sounds wonderful. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. There is one basis for unity and that is sound theology. There is no other basis for truth. Jesus gave them a warning. Because they didn't stand for the one true gospel. They were like uh, the churches in Galatia that Paul said, I'm surprised you're turning to a different gospel so quickly. Here's his warning to Jesus, to, uh, to the church at Pergamum. Jesus said in Revelation 2.16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You mean to tell me that Jesus is going to discipline a church using words like war and sword? Absolutely, because they're offering worship he did not authorize. How about the church of compromising morals in worship? The church of compromising morals in worship. The church at Thyatira, they allowed, they put up with sexual immorality in their midst. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't confront sin. And they dared as a corporate body to just believe that God was okay with this. That they would, they would worship anyway. That God would accept their worship. Jesus said to them, to those who were going along with it, Revelation 2, 22, he said, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. 
Worship cannot be tainted with a blatant disregard for the holiness of God. It can't be tainted. Why is this? Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's a shame to Christ. It's dishonoring to God to gather for corporate worship and then unashamedly live a lifestyle that so denigrates the name of God and puts down the name of Christ. How about this? The example of the relevant church. You can go online and Google relevant church. You get about a billion hits. Revelation 3, the church of Sardis. Jesus said, you have the reputation of being alive. They were the alive church. I actually know of a church that named themselves the alive church after the church at Sardis, not realizing that Jesus was rebuking them, not complimenting them. They were the alive church. They're, They're the church where... Things are happening. They're the church where the programs are wonderful. Like one billboard I saw recently, your children will love our church. They're the external church. We, we do wonderful things. Our, our pastor sits on a bench and he dresses in hip manner and he doesn't wear the stodgy old suit. We do things that are hip, they're trendy. Jesus said, you have the reputation of being alive. But in fact, they were dying. I don't mean they were physically dying. I've preached in physically dying churches. God bless them. There's you know seven saints who are all over the age of 106 and they're trying to hold it together. That's a physically dying church and we love them and we praise God for them. A spiritually dying church can be growing exponentially in numbers. They're building buildings. They're building programs. They're doing all kinds of wonderful things that externally look good, but spiritually they're hollow. There's nothing there. There's nothing inside. Their worship is based on internals, uh, on externals. They're, they're based on being hip and being trendy and attracting the crowd. Instead of their worship being based on the fact that if it wasn't for Christ, we would be consigned to hell. And we're grateful for the cross. And instead of hell, he offers salvation and life and eternity and bliss and heaven. And for this, we worship him. What did Jesus tell Sardis? He said, basically, remember the gospel and repent. And he said, if you don't, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. How about this example? The church of unconfessed sin in worship. The church of unconfessed sin in worship. The church at Corinth. Paul was rebuking the believers. They were being selfish. They were harboring bitterness against one another. They were territorial. They were jealous. It was basically the church of, oh boy, I'm emotionally uncomfortable now. (laughs) Even in worship. They were sharing the Lord's table, communion, in a shallow, selfish manner. Paul reminded them, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six and following, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen to this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You mean God will kill a Christian who desecrates his name in worship? Absolutely he will who will attempt to worship God without examining themselves and confessing sin first? Absolutely. In our church, I lead our church in a pastoral prayer and I always include an element of confession. 
Because we come to the Lord on the basis of our confessed sin. Now, yes, verse 32, Paul tells them that this is God's discipline and mercy, that we may not be condemned along with the world. And we understand this. People have tried to explain this away. Here's the primary argument they give. Well, Paul was talking about the unbeliever taking the Lord's table, that he shouldn't do that because that will incur judgment. Look, the unbeliever will incur judgment because he was born wicked. And he sins against God every moment of his life, not because he showed up in the building and drank some juice and ate a piece of bread. The context of the passage, context is everything, is that Paul is speaking to believers. Verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers... This is why in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the precursor to rightly worshiping God is confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this isn't confession for salvation. If you've been regenerated in Jesus Christ, you, you can't undo that. That's like a butterfly becoming a worm again. It can't happen. But it is about fellowship. To come rightly before God in corporate worship, before the throne of God, having a pure heart and a right relationship with Him is necessary. Let me put it this way. If one of my children violates my standards, and when they were little, they did it all the time. I mean, with one of our kids, we came home and I would discipline first and ask questions later. Why did I just do this? There was always a good answer. I, I might have to discipline. I might have to be hard. But I will never kick them out of my family. I will never get rid of them. I will never take my name back from them. They will always bear my name. We adopted a little girl from South Korea who we just love. And I've told her a thousand times, you will always be my daughter. And then we discipline her. And then I tell her afterwards, you will always be my daughter. But there is a sense of discipline and a sense of distance in our relationship until sin is confessed and we ask for forgiveness. It's not that we're asking for salvation again. It's that we're asking to have a right relationship with the Lord. You know, in our church, we take corporate worship worship very seriously. We do our best to do that which is prescribed by God, um, to worship Him with seriousness, with gravity, and with joy. And we glorify the gospel of Christ. We understand that we can come before the Lord because of the cross and we are we have access to the Lord and that's wonderful but don't forget that he's called the king of kings and lord of lords he's not called my best buddy he is the king our goal in our church is that our preaching our corporate prayers even the lyrics of the songs we sing they're deep they're theological I examine the music that we sing it better be right theologically or we're not going to sing it we want to express the depth of our desire to worship God in spirit and in truth now, very often, we, we use Hebrews 4.16, and I'm going to finish up here in a moment. And we love this. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence, or your version may say with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is a picture of freely running to the cross of Christ, freely running to the Lord. We come in confidence because of the cross, Right? We love to remember the words confidence and boldness and mercy and grace. And we forget the word throne. That it's a king to whom we come. And we will come in his way, not ours. While God welcomes us openly into his presence anytime because of Christ, we are never to forget something. 
We never forget what his expectation is. That's expressed in the spirit of what God told Moses. Exodus 3, 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So here's my one point. If we don't get to just make up corporate worship, we don't get to just decide what that looks like to offer self-styled worship to God, particularly in the corporate setting, then we're left with one option. And that is to understand what the Bible does prescribe, what we are to do in worship. And that's what we'll do the next time. Take a break. See you in 10 minutes.